Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. The medical device industry is built on continuous improvement. And that's not just for devices. It means for the people building those devices. Greenlight Guru Academy is the ultimate resource to learn and grow for medical device professionals. From quick, practical lessons to comprehensive certifications, you'll learn everything you need to know to keep up with the medical device industry. Visit www.greenlight.guru forward slash academy today to start learning the skills for tomorrow. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Today with me is John Spear, the founder of Greenlight Guru, as well as Mike Drews, a familiar face on the podcast. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about a refusal to accept. And specifically, and we may dance around this question a little bit, but after three refusal to accepts, the different guidances from the FDAs, we still have submission issues. We still have problems with submissions with uh, due to the RTA. So maybe to kick us off, Mike, could you summarize the FDA's review process? What happens after the FDA re- receives a submission? Yeah, great question. And as always, thanks for the opportunity to uh, have this discussion with you and your audience. So basically, when FDA receives a submission, whether it's a 510K, a de novo, a PMA, whatever it is, it's basically a two-step review process. The first step is the administrative review, and then that's followed by what FDA calls the substantive or what I call the scientific review. So in a nutshell, what happens in those two portions of the review process, starting out with the administrative review, basically a bean counter at FDA is sitting down with your submission on one side of their desk and their version of the RTA checklist on the other side of their desk. And they're going through section by section, part by part to make sure that you have all the different sections that they're they're present, you have the signatures present, you have the pages numbered and so on and so on. So all of that occurs at the administrative review. And then if you pass administrative review, the next part is the substantive or what I call the scientific review. And in my opinion, that's much, much more important than the administrative review, because that's when FDA will actually evaluate the substance of your submission. In other words, they will read your device description. They will look at your statistical analysis, your benchtop testing, your clinical testing, if you've done that, uh, and so on and so on. The RTA, the refuse to accept checklist, which is the topic of today's discussion, that focuses primarily on the administrative review. In other words, do you have all the sections present? Do you have the signatures in place? Do you have the pages numbered and and so on and so on? If you don't get through the administrative review, FDA will not go on to review the substance, the scientific portion of your submission. So the RTA and the administrative review is important, but only to the point that it gets you to the most important part, and that is the substantive review. And then the last thing that I'll mention real quick, and then John, you know, please feel free to and whatever I may have forgotten. If a submission gets rejected on administrative review, that is 100% the company's fault. It is not FDA's fault. It is 100% the company's fault. If the submission has a problem on substantive review, in other words, FDA doesn't agree with your statistical analysis or thinks you should have done different testing or something, okay, that's fair game. That's FDA doing their job. And that's when you start the negotiation, what I call the poker game. But if your submission has problems on administrative review, that is 100% your fault. John, would you agree or am I being overly harsh here? 
Uh, no, I don't think you're being overly harsh uh, because, you know, it, it, it does amaze me. Sometimes I hear, uh, I'll hear a comment from somebody that, that their submission got kicked back at the, at the RTA or the refused to accept stage of the review process and they're surprised. And I'm like, did, what was it that, that, um, what was the question? What, what was missing? What were they asking for that you didn't provide? And like a hundred percent of the time, it's something that, was known is something that you know was either uh, you know a section of the five ten k that was missing, or you know, folks, no, there's not a secret here. The FDA publishes the refuse to accept checklist, the very checklist. I believe it's the exact very same checklist that they're going to use when they get your submission. That's a publicly available template, and there's no excuse for you not to go through. That template. In fact, what I uh, advise folks who are preparing those uh, submissions is to make a copy of that RTA checklist and you know add in a reference, a page number, a section, whatever the case may be of where that specific item on that checklist is addressed. And if you, as the submitter, have not done that or cannot point to where that's specifically called out in your submit, then yeah, that's hundred percent in your control. This is funny because it makes me, so when I was in college, this is a dumb example, but to bear with me for a minute, I was actually a TA, the teacher's aide, uh, unbeknownst to my other classmates, I was supposed to be an anonymous TA. And so I was grading homework and uh, it was an easy throw. I would flip through that. Anyone who forgot their name, I'd throw that homework out because it was an automatic zero. That was easy. And there was always like half a dozen people who did that. And that's what makes me think. I didn't realize with the RTA, you have this broken down from you have the uh, substantive, which I like your word scientific better. I think it makes it make a little bit more sense to me, but versus the the simply administrative section, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, it's just, it's a provision. I, and then this is as far as things FDA are re- related anyway, it's an, I mean, it's older than I realized after, you know, seeing some of the notes, but it is still a newer practice, I, I would say, in the agency, at least with respect to, to the 510K. But I like this stuff um, because, you know, to me, it, it gave me, um, when I was in the practice of preparing 510K submissions, it gave me a little bit of clarity as to, okay, this is a, a, a fairly black and white list of things that above and beyond the table of contents that that gives me a little bit guidance as the preparer of that submission. But it also gave me a point in time because uh, when you submit a 510K, at least back in the olden days, back you know when I didn't have white and gray hair, sometimes you'd submit a, a 510K and there was no exchange, there was no dialogue and that sort of thing. There was kind of silence for you know sometimes weeks upon weeks upon weeks. So at least with the RTA step, you get confirmation that says, yeah, Everything we expected in the submission, we've got it. We've we've confirmed that, and now we're moving to that scientific review stage of of the review process. So, yeah, I, I like this step. And Eddie and I would just point out that metaphor that you just shared about your TA experience. It's actually it's a very good metaphor because there are specific line items in the various RTA checklists. Remember, there's not just one; there's several of them. With that level of granularity, in other words, specifically. Did you number your pages? Do you have a table of contents? Now, I would like to think that, you know, for people that have graduated from elementary school, we wouldn't need that level of micromanagement. (laughs) But as many of our audience know, I also work as a reviewer for the FDA, as a consultant for the FDA. So I see these issues from both sides. Some of the submissions that that I see come into the agency, some of them are terrific. Some of them are literally painful to read. 
And if they don't have page numbers or if they don't have, you know, the person's name on the paper, what other kinds of information do they not have, you know, that is much more important? So that's a good point. Yeah, it really, really reduces the confidence and the uh, the quality of the content itself. I, I can totally see where you're coming from. So there, there's multiple uh, guidances out there from the FDA. How should those be used, uh, the different guidances that have been published? Yeah, great question. So there are three guidances that I would point out to the audience to be aware of, and we can put references on the, the links of the podcast. Sure. The first is the uh, refuse to accept our RTA policy for 510Ks. The second is similar, an acceptance review for de novos. And the third is acceptance and filing reviews for pre-market approval applications or PMAs. So between those three, the 510K and the PMA and the de novo, we're covering the vast majority of the medical device universe. So there's plenty of guidance out there. Uh, There are checklists out there, as John alluded to earlier, that we could use. If we parse those a little bit more, if we look, for example, within the 510K RTA guidance, There are three checklists within that guidance, one for traditional 510Ks, one for special 510Ks, and one for abbreviated 510Ks. Interestingly enough, FDA has not not caught up. John, you maybe remember we've done some other podcasts on the safety and performance-based 510K, the sort of the, the new version, the I'm hesitant to use this word, but the the resurrected version of the abbreviated 510K, which we now call the safety and performance-based 510K, that's not in the RTA guidance yet. I personally don't think that it's necessary to have an RTA for an SP 510K, but that's a topic of a different discussion. I would point out, though, that looking at the three RTA guidances, you guys might find this interesting. The traditional 510K RTA checklist is 34 pages long. Just the checklist alone is 34 pages long. Special 510K RTA checklist is 11 pages. Okay, that makes sense. But the abbreviated 510K checklist is 35 pages long. The abbreviated RTA checklist is actually longer than the traditional 510K RTA checklist. So abbreviated doesn't necessarily mean what a lot of people might think that it means. It's kind of like, to quote a famous politician, what it, it depends on what your definition of is is. Anyway, just a little bit of regulatory trivia for, for those in our audience. And ironically, the PMA checklist, just to complete the, the comparison here, so the 510K checklists are between 11 and 35 pages long depending on which version of the 510K you're talking about. The de novo checklist is about 18 pages long. So a de novo checklist is shorter than the traditional 510K checklist. And yet the de novo more complicated usually than a traditional 510K. But here's the irony. The PMA checklist is 17 pages long. (laughs) The PMA checklist is roughly half the length of a traditional 510K checklist. So I'm only pointing that out just simply because of when you look at the numbers, it's kind of um, interesting or ironic, but that doesn't say anything about the substance. Uh, These checklists have all been around for a very long time. As a matter of fact, with the exception of the de novo, the 510K and the PMA checklists have been around for more than a decade. And yet, as we'll talk about when we get to the statistics, there's still a lot of companies that get submissions rejected on administrative review. As a matter of fact, here's one statistic for you, and then John, I would love to hear your thoughts. Approximately 
60% of 510Ks are rejected on RTA, part of the administrative review, approximately 60%. And as I said before, when a, a submission has problems or is rejected on administrative review, that's 100% the company's fault. John, your thoughts? Well, I'm actually excited about what you just said. <laughs> And, and a, and a weird twisted sort of way, but let me explain. I remember Mike, you and I, when we talked about RTA and, and you know, getting rejected, 510K is getting re- rejected quite a few years ago. I think that number was north of 75% were getting rejected. So we, so industry relationship made an improvement, but it's still over 60%. That's still crazy for something that is a hundred percent in your control. Right. We're not talking you getting kicked back during the scientific review. We're talking about at the administrative. That's still crazy that six out of 10 are being rejected because they're inadequate. John, would you like to know the current statistics? Because I actually looked them up yeah, sure. uh, for the for the purposes of today's call. So according to the most currently available Madufa statistics, this is through February of this year. So roughly about a, a, a month and a half uh, prior to uh, our recording of, of today's. 65% of 510Ks are rejected. They result in um, additional information requests, yeah. 65%. Now, if you look at over the last five years, that number has been pretty constant. It's fluctuated between 64 and 66%. So two thirds of 510Ks are continuing to be rejected over the last five years. Uh, the wow. average review time for 510Ks from receipt uh, of the uh, by the FDA to Madufa decision is 302 days. So that's on the 510K side. On the PMA side of the universe, 83% of PMAs are being rejected first time out of the box. They're resulting from uh, resulting in what we call major deficiency letters. And if you look at over the last five years, there's been more fluctuation there, uh, roughly between 63% and 91% of PMAs have, are being rejected uh, over the last five years. The total review time for those submissions is about, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I, I think I gave the wrong number for the 510K. The total review time for the 510K is about 108 days. The total review time for the PMA, about 302 days. Yeah, that makes so sense. So bottom line, these numbers, uh, although they do fluctuate a little bit, although the 510K really doesn't fluctuate much in years, they're still not very good. Just trying and to make, make sure I understand. So you're saying, has it gone down the rejection rate or, or just a little? So that's, I mean, so just to be clear, the statistics that I had shared with you, and again, these are coming right out of the most Madufa statistics from the FDA. FDA is required to track these by, by Congress. For the 510K universe, over the last five years, it's only fluctuated between 64 and 66%. Yeah. So that's pretty, pretty and, constant. And the, I, the number I mentioned, so Mike and I have been you know, conversating about well, a lot of things regulatory for, for quite a few years. And, and I, I think the 75% number, I, I could have just, it could be an incorrect memory, but but that was no, it's probably- No, it's not an incorrect memory, John. That's the number in the past that I would just yeah, okay, okay, kind of yeah. carry around in my. So right now we've ju- we've we've dropped about 10 percentage points, but still we're still so talking two thirds of 510Ks and even greater for PMAs in spite of the fact that these RTA guidances have been around for more than a decade. So now, one, to be fair, one second, to be fair, yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean that all of these rejections are coming on the administrative review. 
right. roughly the, the 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 Medufa statistics do not include that directly. But if you do some indirect comparison, some some back of the envelope kind of calculation, approximately sixty percent of newly filed five ten Ks are refused under the RTA under administrative yeah. review. Yeah, and, and and that's you know that's still um, you know I, I guess sometimes I am a optimistic silver lining kind of guy. So, you know, from, from when we talked about this, you know, um, maybe more than five years ago to now, there's been some improvement, but to your point, it's still two thirds, two thirds for a universe, even more, you know, to to your point, the guidance has been out this for about 10 years, pre-submissions or should be more um, in vogue these days as well. So if we're utilizing the RTA guidance documents, if we're utilizing uh, opportunities like pre-submissions, it is, uh, it's, it still kind of is sad that, that two thirds are getting, getting kicked back. That's just, um, it's inexcusable really. Well, look, I don't want to use our time to bash on the FDA. There's too much to that of that. <laughs> I don't want to use our time to bash on our industry and ourselves. Um, yeah. I think Eddie, and maybe what would help the audience here is to talk about some specific examples of, uh, yeah. what can lead to this and how can we avoid it? Well, and there's there's two things I wanted to ask. So if we talk about, let, let's focus on the the drop down. And I know for every silver lining, there's a dark cloud, but I'm with John. I like to prefer to focus on the silver lining, but uh, what there are e-tools out there now. Is that helping or is that advantageous uh, to use those or the pros and cons? Is that helping as opposed to the RTA themselves? Um, thoughts there? And then I would like to get in some specific examples. Sure. Uh, John, do you want to take a, a first stab at that one? Well, uh, I have a little bit of experience with a couple of, of software um, platforms that are out there t- that are supposed to help with the preparation process. Uh, I wish I could sit here and tell you I have statistics on on their success rate and how it compares to the Medufa numbers. I don't have that. I, I think I'd, I'd like to believe that that any tool should be it should help facilitate the process. However, caveat, it still is contingent on humans entering information. Uh, you know, now some of these e-tools, they do have the added benefit, like, like for example, the um, intended use statement. Uh, I think this is a good example. It probably finds its way in, in your submission, your 510K submission. I haven't counted recently, but at least a half dozen times in multiple different. And uh, you would think this is, this is a, a no-brainer can never happen thing that I'm about to say, but you would be surprised how often that statement is different within a single submission. And yeah. this section, it might say this, and this other section, yeah. it might have other words. That's a common bonehead mistake that, that people make. So the e-tools try to help facilitate it and mitigate that issue. So I'm, I, I got to believe those are working. And I know FDA has, um, Oh, what's the program called? The E-Star. And um, there's, uh, I think that's it. But I don't know how that's helping or hurting, but I got to believe if it's done properly, it should assist a little bit. But I, I think that's only going to reduce the rejections by a small fraction of the of, of the percentage. Well, John, that example that you just shared on the high level labeling, specifically the indications for use, uh, there is no better way to guarantee that you're is going to get thrown right back in your face than when you repeat the high-level labeling, but you do not repeat it exactly the same way each time. As a matter of fact, just one of my customers yesterday admitted to me that she had submissions rejected 
uh, in the past for exactly that same reason. Yeah. So electronic tools, whether you're talking about the E-Star version, which is the uh, FDA's version or some of the commercial versions, they will help you do that. They will help you minimize those kinds of problems. But just taking a step back, so coming back to the original question, we do now have e-tools available to help us with the submission process. On the FDA side, uh, there's the uh, voluntary, what's called the E-Star program. Basically, this is an interactive PDF file. You can get it right off of their website. We can put a link on the on the podcast page sure. for our for our audience to help make sure that you have all of the sections in place and the information and so on. According to FDA's website, and this is a direct quote, it's intended to enhance the incoming quality of submissions for a wide variety of medical devices by helping to ensure submitters provide quality, comprehensive data for the CDRH's pre-market review. That's right from FDA's website, and I could not disagree with it more. (laughs) Disagree with it more. As a matter of fact, I would, with all due respect to my many FDA friends, I would like FDA to be just as careful with the claims that they put on their own website as they are when they're evaluating claims on a device coming in for a submission. What do I mean by that? All of these tools, including eStar, they will help, as John just described, with the organization of your mm-hmm. submission, making sure that you have all the, 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 the sections, make sure that you have the labeling repeated exactly the same, make sure you have the, the signatures in place. But they will do absolutely nothing in terms of evaluating the content, the substance of your submission. Yeah. That's the problem that I have with, with, with the way uh, that that's written. But there are some advantages of using eStar over the commercial programs because of the automatic ver- verification that's been built into eStar. CDRH does not intend to conduct RTA review of submissions that go in under the eStar program. So that could be a possible um, advantage for a company. eStar is now available for 510K and de novo submissions. It's not available for PMA submissions, at least not yet. Perhaps in the future, I kind of doubt it because even though, as I said earlier, the checklist for the PMA is ironically much shorter than for 510K, a PMA is much more complicated than than a 510K. and John, you mentioned we actually did a podcast. We can put this up on the website as well, specifically sure. on the eStar program uh, about a, almost two years ago when the when the eStar program was first announced. So yeah. that's available on the on the FDA side. On the commercial side, there are a couple of commercial packages that I'm aware of that basically do the same thing. One of the companies likes to use the metaphor uh, like um, TurboTax for 510Ks. It helps you fill in the information, make sure that it's in the proper place. But the reason why I like that metaphor is because TurboTax is not a substitute for a good account. In other words, TurboTax will help you make sure that your forms are, uh, you, you have the right forms and you have the numbers in the forms and so on. But when it comes to evaluating the quality of the information, the numbers that go into the boxes, TurboTax is of no benefit. So E-Star and the commercial programs are very, very good, very useful tools when they're used by someone who knows what they're doing. But when they're used by somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, you can cause a lot of damage. Still garbage in, garbage out. Garbage in, garbage out. There you go. Uh, you, you said one thing. So if you use eStar, you said FDA does not intend for it to go through the RTA process. So it's, it's almost as if the RTA guidance sort of built into the e-star process did i hear you correctly i think that's i think that's the theory 
E-Star is still relatively new. I've been involved now in a few submissions where we've used the E-Star. So I'm sort of, you know, holding back my final opinion, but I think that's exactly the theory. They've built uh, the checks into the E-Star program such that you couldn't complete and, and, and submit the, the application if you didn't pass it. Kind of like TurboTax. You know, I should be careful what I say here, but I just finished my taxes this past weekend. Uh, <laughs> TurboTax would not let me submit it to the IRS until I had the information filled out properly. It doesn't evaluate the quality, the accuracy of your information. It fig- it fills it out, uh, you know, the, the make sure that you have all the right forms and so on. So that's, that's why I like the metaphor. Well, so one thing, when I'm thinking about the RTA and, and the possibility that ECR could prevent me having that process taken care of, maybe it would be beneficial to see some very specific examples of submissions being completed. And if you think about that Gaussian curve, you know, let's leave out the the, the long tails where someone uh, uh, left their entire name off. But what what are some <laughs> some things that you can see as being potential hangups for companies? Yeah, great question. And to transition from our eStar discussion, when I say that eStar is not intended or designed to evaluate the the content of your submission. If I typed into, literally, in the device description field, my device is a piece of crap, then eStar will accept that. It has your device yeah. description. It will accept it. The other commercial programs will accept it. Right. You know, but so it's not evaluating the content of that information. Of course, I'm using an extreme example sure. to illustrate, but you understand my point. Okay, so more importantly, let's take a look at some some specific examples, starting out with some of the more trivial and then getting into the more interesting ones. So one of the things on the um, 510K RTA checklist is to make sure that you have a a table of contents. Well, a few years ago, I had a three-page submission, three-page submission that was rejected because we did not have a table of contents. I was miffed. I said to the company, because I wanted to make a statement here, I said to the company, okay, add one line to the submission, table of contents, submission pages one through three. I did not even want to kick it to a fourth page because I was miffed. I wanted to make a statement. Then we also, I said to the to the uh, review team, I said, look, I understand that rules are important and we have to you know, follow the rules and so on, but can we use a modem, modicum of common sense? Does a three-page submission really need a table of contents? And the reason why I was so miffed is because by the time it gets rejected out of FDA system and sent back to the company and, and the company deals with it and so on, you're talking about many weeks, maybe a few months of delay just because of that. That's one example. Another example is to make sure that you're using the the current forms. One of the things that I do with some of my customers before they make their submission is they'll ask me to review it, put my FDA reviewer hat on temporarily, review it. And when I was reviewing it, I happened to to notice purely coincidentally that the date on the, the rev date on the bottom of the 510K cover sheet was not the most current version of that form. And I said to the company, you should update it. And by the way, I had a, a graduate student working for me at the time. I had them do a comparison previous version and the current version. There was no difference between the forms. No difference. It was exactly the same. The only difference was the date on the bottom of the form. I still said to the company, update the form you put before you submit it. They said, why, Mike? It's the same form. Because I can envision a scenario where some bean counter at FDA is sitting down with their RTA checklist. Are they, do they have this section checked? Do they have that section checked? Do they have, are they using the current form? Nope, boom, gets thrown out of the system, gets come back, get cut, sets back to the company. And again, you're talking about weeks, maybe even months of delays. 
one of the most common reasons why submissions are rejected is because a particular section is left out. Put yourself in the shoes of the reviewer. They have no idea why you're leaving out that section. In other words, are you leaving out? Especially at this, sorry, but especially at this phase of the review process. Exactly correct, John. Thank you. Exactly correct. Are you leaving that section out because it's not applicable? And I'll give you some examples of that in a moment. Or are you leaving it out because you just forgot about it? The, the reviewer has absolutely no idea. They're not in your head. They have no idea why that section is missing. So never leave a section out, never leave anything blank. At the very least, put not applicable. And then I often take it a step further. I will say not applicable, and here are the reasons why. I'm not saying to create a 300-page PhD dissertation, but you know, a sentence or a couple of sentences uh, explaining why it's not applicable. Now, some companies will take that approach. Other companies won't. Some companies will take the approach of, we only want to give FDA as much information as we have to and not one bit more. So in that case, we only want to say not applicable. And the defense of that position is, why create a potential problem where a problem doesn't exist if you're giving more information. Other companies will say, let's try to prevent a problem. Let's try to prevent the question coming back. Hey, you marked this not applicable. Why is this not applicable? So this is sort of the the risk benefit analysis that you have to do when you're filling these sections out. And again, I'm not talking about a five-year PhD dissertation, just a, a few seconds or a few minutes of mental time. I take, you know, what are the benefits of just saying not applicable? versus the risks and what are the risks and benefits of adding a sentence or a couple of sentences of explaining why this is not applicable. I have a few other examples I can share, but maybe, uh, John, you want to add something at this point. Yeah, I'll just enhance what you just said. Like Mike's examples of, you know, sometimes there are sections that are not applicable. You know, some of you are probably like, yeah, I already know what those are. Others may be like, well, what do you mean? Can you give me a more specific example? So uh, if you're making a purely mechanical device, there's a section of a 510K that has to do with, uh, I think it's electromagnetic safety. Yep. Well, if it's a purely mechanical device, that section probably doesn't apply because you don't have electronics. So yep. state, not applicable. Device has no electronics. I mean, you go. pretty simple, that's a, right? That's a perfect example. Even pretty and, simple. And the, the the idea of just getting things through quickly, you know, you you talked about the, the time for review sort of being reduced. I'll give just a real world example that I think everybody, everybody who's now flying, you know, I, I have global, global entry. I went to the pre, TSA pre-check, but it wasn't on my ticket. I get up to the counter and I started having a sinking feeling. He said, you're not, you're not TSA pre-check, get out of here. And I said, well, I'm global entry. He said, those are two different things. Get get out of here. Well, global entry covers TSA pre-check, but I'm not going to argue with the TSA guy. And uh, <laughs> someone else said, you know, are you upset? I'm like, well, you know, he's got a lot on his mind. I want him to focus on what he's got to focus on. Maybe I was a little upset, but it's the same thing. You know, people are, are it's it's an expedite process and, and we should be thankful for that. Well, I'm impressed because I have TSA pre, but I do not have global entry. So (laughs) maybe I (laughs) should say that on here. (laughs) I won't I won't argue with TSA because that serves me no no good. But I will argue with FDA if it's if it's, you know, you know, that's part of my job. Yeah. Um, But so, John, let me take that that electrical example and and, and build onto that a little bit further, because I have a few other specific examples. I don't want to talk in generalities and platitudes. I want to give as many specific examples as, as possible. And these are real examples, uh, not that I experienced, but real reasons why submissions were were rejected by the FDA. Failure to state whether a condom was patient contacting. 
failure to state whether a condom is patient contacting. Now, I never assume that FDA understands anything that I tell them. Don't assume that FDA understands your device. One of the most poorly written sections of the submission, in my opinion, is the device description. And the reason why I say that is because the vast majority of questions that I see coming back from reviewers across the board, the vast majority is uh, of questions is indicative of the fact that they don't understand the device, what it does, how it works, its mechanism of action, and so on. It's not the job of the FDA to make sure that they understand your device. It's the job of you to make sure that FDA understands your device. So my advice to companies is, I find it interesting. Uh, so many people, they, they think about measuring the efficacy of their device, but they don't think about measuring the efficacy of their, of their submission, specifically the device description. So here's my recommendation. Take your device description, give it to somebody who's not familiar with, their de- with your device, ask them to read it, and then literally yank it out of their hands, ask them to describe to you what they just read. If they describe to you, if they paint a verbal picture of something that looks like your device, then great, you know you're communicating. But if they paint a picture that looks nothing like your device, or worse, they're so confused that they can't paint any picture, then you know you're not communicating, right? So this is so basic to me, it's common sense, but it's amazing to me how few people actually do this. So measure the efficacy of your device description. Here's another example. Failure to comply with a draft guidance document. Failure to comply with a draft guidance document. Well, first of all, I think, John, as you and I have talked about in the past, even though FDA continues to use the verbiage draft versus final with it, well, in the context of guidance documents, it really doesn't matter. There's no such thing as a draft or a final guidance document, and that's a topic of a different discussion. But here's the thing. Whether you're going to follow a guidance document or not, you've got to justify what you do. So as part of your submission, or better, as part of your pre-submission meeting, you need to make sure that you explain and get FDA to understand and agree that we're not going to do what's in the guidance. We're going to do something else, and here are all the reasons. One last example, and then I would love to hear you guys, your thoughts on this. Failure to indicate vinyl gloves contain uh, that do not contain software or meet electrical safety requirements. This is the example that you shared a moment. Vinyl gloves, failure to indicate that vinyl gloves do not contain software or meet safe uh, electrical safety requirements. This is the quintessential example of do not leave a section out. If your if your device is something like vinyl gloves, which clearly does not involve electrical safety or software, don't just leave those out. Say app say not applicable and even step further, say not applicable because it's a vinyl glove, you idiot. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, contain, you know, a risk of electrical safety or, or, you know, software or something like that. And last and very last, typos, misprints, duplicate pages, and so on. Do I really need to say more? I mean, proofread your submission. And it sounds like a very common you know, sensical thing, and it is, but it's amazing to me how many people uh, don't do this. And here will be my last piece of pragmatic advice on this point. And then, I, John, I would love to hear your thoughts. Why do so many companies treat the FDA as their beta tester? In other words, the first people to see their submission uh, outside of their own company is the FDA. To me, that makes absolutely no sense. One of the things that I do with a lot of my customers, I don't mean to be self-serving, I'm just simply trying to share some of my best practices. Before uh, a company submits their, their submission or has a meeting at the FDA, they'll ask me to come in 
temporarily put my FDA reviewer hat up because I work as a consultant for the agency, uh, sit through their presentation, read through their submission. And if I could be a bit brash here, bash the hell out of it. Because the idea is if they're going to make a mistake, better for them to make a mistake in front of me. After all, what do I know? I don't matter. As opposed to the FDA. I don't want to go so far as to say that if a company can get what it is that they're trying to sell through me, if they can get me to buy it, then the FDA will buy it. I'm not going to go quite that far. But on the other hand, I can make a a reasonable surrogate uh, for the FDA. And I think a good regulatory professional or a good regulatory consultant, not an average one, a good one should be sort of a surrogate or a proxy for the FDA. If you can get your submission through your own regulatory consultant or your own regulatory professional, you should be in good shape. But unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of average regulatory professionals out there. In my opinion, John, maybe you disagree. There's a lot of good ones. What do you think? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I, I agree with that last statement. I, I, you know, I want to remind people too. I mean, you know, each you and Etienne, and I've kind of uh, touched on this a little bit so far, but this this submission that you're preparing and sending to FDA, you know, you don't know you don't know who on the FDA side of thing is going to get it per se. I mean, you may have a pretty good idea, but to make an assumption that 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 person that's getting this understand, oh, not applicable. Oh, vinyl glove makes sense making those kind of assumptions without an explanation, there's a little bit of risk to that. The other thing is this submission, you know, in some respects, it's a reflection of you, the the preparer, but definitely a reflection of the company that, that uh, you and, and the submission represents. And, and it's your story, you know, um, make that story as easy to follow uh, as you possibly can, you know, provide, you know, the pagination, the table of contents, just some basic things to where, you know, to where the reviewer can find the information that they're looking for as easily as possible. Uh, you know, also keep in mind a lot of submissions, uh, they're divided. You know, some person over here is going to review, you know, with a toxicology background, may review the ability information, the electromechanical uh, experts going to look at the sa- electrical safety and so on and so forth. So it's going to be there's a chance it's going to be parsed out to different people. And, and if it is confusing to follow or you keep, you know, pointing out back and forth and here and there, you're just making that reviewer's job more and more difficult. And if you're going to make somebody's job more difficult, I guess, do you think that's going to make your life easier? <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely I, not. One of my most important jobs is I want to make the reviewer's job as easier as I can. I guarantee that your submission is going to be reviewed by a lot of people, a lot of yeah. different subject matter experts at FDA. That goes without saying. And Eddie, and I know we've got to wrap this up soon, sure. but John, I love your metaphor of telling a story. What we should be what we should be doing, not just in regulatory submissions and pre-subs and all these kinds of documents that we're sending to the FDA, we should be doing exactly that. We should be telling a story. This is a story of my medical device. This is a story of how it was developed, how I tested it, how I know that it's safe, effective, and so on and so on. So I love that metaphor of telling a story. I think that's something that I do in most of my documents. I think it's something that other people can try as well. It should be nonfiction, though, not not. <laughs> One thing this makes me think of is so when I was a manufacturing engineer, uh, was GDP was a big deal, good documentation process. That's why you always had to cross a box out that that was blank, and 
if you didn't, you go to have it approved or circulated, somebody invariably would say, you know, why is this, what, what happened here? You don't want to have to retell that story every time because that's obviously okay. a red flag in an audit. You're going to have to tell that story again. And that's, that's, that's never a place you want to be. So I, you know, we come back to the true quality side of an engineer's life that, you know, that doing a good job for this form, you know, this is something that should be ingrained in our everyday life anyway, already. Um, but, it, you know, getting away from the philosophical, I do have one other question before we do wrap it up. Suppose I'm rejected for an RTA. What, what are some of the options that we have if, if we've been rejected for this? Yeah, great question. And it depends on what was the nature of that reject. In other words, if you were rejected on administrative review, then chances are it's something relatively minor, like you forgot a signature, you omitted a section. Those kinds of, of problems usually be resolved fairly quickly. But on the other hand, if it's rejected on scientific review, then you know if FDA has a difference in opinion in the testing that you've done and your statistical analysis, what have you, those things can be you know more difficult to resolve, especially at the point of the submission. That's why, John, as you and I have talked about many times, and it's no secret, I'm such a big fan of the pre-submission process because problems that occur in the substantive review or what I call the scientific review of the submission can almost always be mitigated, if not completely eliminated, with a good pre-sub beforehand. So administrative review problems, those can usually be fixed, but they shouldn't happen anyway if you're following the guidance, you're using one of these e-tools. Substantive review problems can usually be minimized or avoided with a good pre-sub. That would be my my best there. Okay, okay, well, all right. That might be a mic drop, but anything else, any other pieces of things, that you know, information that are important in this topic? No, just to wrap this up, we have the three guidances now for RTA checklists. Within the 510K, we have three RTAs listed, uh, checklists and that. So there's a litany of resources out there that are freely available. And yet, in spite of that, or maybe because of that, you know, companies still run into problems. It's difficult to understand. So as John and I both have talked about, whether we should have these kinds of guidances or not, it's a moot. They, they exist. So since they exist, you might as well John said, I always like to use it as a checklist or even include that checklist as part of my submission. Tick those boxes, even though, John, I think you and I both are not fans of the, the box ticking mentality. But in this particular case, maybe it's an exception to the rule. So use those. And perhaps most importantly, don't blame FDA or anybody else. Learn from other people's mistakes. I've tried to, in as detail as I can in today's discussion, give some very specific, very concrete examples of what happened and why and how it could have been avoided. So learn from those mistakes. There's other resources out there. Uh, there's a lot of people like John and myself that have a lot of experience playing this game. If you don't have a lot of experience with your with this, then get somebody on your team to help you. Absolutely. Uh, I think that's the, the most important thing. Yeah. Absolutely. One of my favorite lines that you said so far, um, I'm going to try to remember it. I don't know if I have it verbatim, but the FDA's job is not to understand your device. It's your job to make sure the FDA understands your device. I thought that was a great line. Um, I guess that's in coupled with, uh, if you have an RTA rejection, it is your company's fault, not the FDA's fault. Those kind of go hand in hand, I suppose. But I thought that was really good. Thank you. John, anything to add or takeaways in your mind? Yeah, I guess... One thing to add, folks, we still have a long way to go. I mean, you heard Mike um, share the statistics over the past few years. Two-thirds are still being rejected. And 
we got some work to do. So we're moving in the right direction, but there's no reason why two thirds of 510Ks should be rejected. There's just no reason. None at all. All right. So we have specific guidances for each one of these submissions, whichever one you're working with, you can uh, definitely check those out in the show notes. We will add those. And you've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thank you. If you're interested in learning more about the Global Medical Device Success Platform, the only success platform that can help you get to market faster because it's built by medical device professionals for medical device professionals, go over to www.greenlight.guru to find out more. We will see you next time. The medical device industry is nothing if not unique. So we built software that works the same way. Greenlight Guru is the only quality management system designed by medical device professionals to meet the unique needs of medical device companies. Our cloud-based platform allows companies to bring safer products to market up to three times faster while reducing risk and lowering cost. Visit www.greenlight.guru today to request your free personalized demo of Greenlight Guru.